Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Stars Oratoria, your premier Star Citizen podcast. My name is Senate Van Ryn, and I am currently broadcasting to you live from a medical research outpost in a tucked away planetary system that shall go unnamed. As you know, and I'm sure have not appreciated, it's been some time since our last broadcast over the holidays. The last few weeks were full of space travel and happiness, but it wasn't all sunshine and quasars. For those of you that don't frequent the podcast website at starsoratoria.com, I became quite ill during our travels in and out of one of the numerous Sean Homeworlds to visit with some of my lovely producer's relatives. Well, she calls them relatives, you might call them eggs. One day soon, those eggs will hatch and out will emerge 38 beautiful little Sean babies. As always, Uncle Senate will be the hippest uncle this side of the Terran Hydroform. Yet I digress. Apparently, scientists, both Sean and human alike, are still studying the effects of a Sean incubation chamber on human biology. It's not healthy, it turns out. The long wait between episodes was due primarily to yours truly coming down with a mild case of the Glicknik virus. The average person will notice it coming on by how quickly their fingernails grow between clippings. As my producer is already annoyed by how often I clip my fingernails, we unfortunately didn't pick up on that early warning sign. Have no fear, however, as fortunately I did catch it upon waking after the second indicator occurred overnight when I grew a sixth finger out of my shoulder. It's a wild galaxy, as we all know, and stranger things have happened. But we've been holed up with dear friends as guests in this medical outpost since, and you may or may not be pleased to know that I am feeling much better now. But why, Uncle Senate, you might ask, did a simple sixth finger since removed keep you from recording episode four for so long? Well, the Glicknik virus can also lead to a runny nose, congestion, and sore throat, so consult a physician if you find a sixth finger growing out of your shoulder. A sore throat can be unpleasant when you need to use your voice as much as I do. The common human cold was eradicated over 600 years ago, but a few of its symptoms still crop up from time to time as a byproduct of other viruses. Virus I. So all's well in and around Imperial territory, and we're happy to be back for the fourth episode of Stars Oratoria. Coming up in episode four, alongside our usual segments, we will be discussing peripherals for Star Citizen and some exciting ship information that's been released since episode three. As well, we will discuss some controversy that has been brewing in the community over the past month. And most importantly, we will have our first guest from the community. For now, we'll take a quick break and return with the latest news and updates from Chris Roberts and the team at Cloud Imperium Games Corporation. Stick around. First up, the news. What has been released this past month? Well, I was excited to get my first glimpse back in December at the Origin 300i, which some of you may remember is the ship that I pledged for during the crowdfunding campaign. As always, links to relevant topics can be found in the show notes. 
Can I say that I'm satisfied with how the 300i is turning out? Yes and no. I don't think it's bad by any means, and I'm certainly no artist. But I would be dishonest if I said I wasn't expecting something a bit different. If you've seen the concept artwork or are taking a look now, you might notice that it bears a striking resemblance to modern military fighter craft. You might remember from the Ship a Show segment that I did on the 300i, it's manufactured by Origin Jumpworks, which is, according to the ship's development document, the Star Citizen Universe's BMW equivalent. I think when it comes down to it, I was expecting something less military-oriented and more luxury-oriented, with a hint of fighting ability. Something more sleek and less intimidating. On the official forum, user BusinessMonkey started a thread discussing this exact topic, expressing a similar opinion, and he received a bit of unwarranted heat from the majority of users who disagreed. Of course, as these things are endlessly subjective, and we all know how people are happy to argue about things that are solidly objective, some disagreement and debate is expected. For my own view, I think the 300i as it's currently conceptualized is a bit too bulky and imposing, but I'm sure I'll enjoy it once I'm walking around the living space and settling into the cockpit. If changes and adjustments are still planned, I hope to see it become a little sleeker, not a lot, and have some of the height reduced in the tail area. It's got a very retro, as in 21st century, feel currently. Another thing I hope to see in future ships are more asymmetrical designs. The only asymmetrical design I think we've seen so far is in the Vandul fighter, which is technically a pirate, aka evil ship. I would hope that asymmetry isn't relegated only to the bad guys. Another exciting tidbit that's been released are two videos showing how the Constellation might load and unload its P-52 fighter and cargo. As it stands, a sort of elevator tray lowers, and the P-52 lowers onto it and zooms off, then the cargo is able to drop. If you look at the video linked to in the show notes, you'll see that the cargo is on equal-sized pallets to either side of the P-52. That's important. So what's my take? From browsing the forum, there are many that like it and many that don't. Once again, I have to levy some constructive criticism. I, as I'm sure many others did as well, had an image in my head, or a series of moving images you could say, of how the fighter would undock from the constellation. After checking the forum, I found many who had a similar picture. Here's mine. Instead of a sort of toaster oven style elevator tray lowering and a skidded P-52 dropping onto it, the P-52 would be connected to the underside of the constellation by docking clamps. The only part of the P-52 that is inside of the cargo area would be the cockpit, which when docked is of course sealed off from outer space, allowing the pilot to climb in and climb out. Now, you might think the P-52's underside would be exposed to damage when the constellation is under fire, but we could now replace the elevator tray with a retractable section of hull, a blast door or a blast shield of sorts, that could cover the P-52 and its docking area when not in use. So the constellation is under fire. The pilot of the constellation, or the pilot of the snub fighter, can retract the blast door covering the P-52. And either pilot can then release the docking clamps. Maybe you could make it optional, actually, so that someone couldn't easily steal your P-52. So perhaps only the pilot in the constellation cockpit can retract the blast door and release the docking clamps. Anyway, then the docking clamps are released, and the P-52 drops off with the constellation zipping ahead at high speed. At this point, you don't have a bulky, clunky elevator tray increasing the size and profile of your ship, 
making you an even larger target, and the P-52 can now deploy quickly. To dock once the battle is over, the P-52 pilot flies close to the underside of the constellation, and perhaps the docking clamps are magnetized. Then the cockpit gets sucked up and is sealed off from space. The blast door closes over the underside of the fighter outside. Done. But wait, what about the cargo? Since the cargo seems to be a set size, as it would have to be to be only on either side of the P-52 fighter, have now two elevator trays that are just for the loading and unloading of cargo to either side of the P-52 fighter. So when the Constellation is in port, two thinner elevators lower on either side of the fighter and you load them up, then they raise and the fighter is never disturbed. All problems solved. Fighter deploys and docks quickly and quite awesomely. And the cargo loads in and out the same way. Also, the ship design doesn't need to be altered. That, in my very humble opinion, is a more elegant and smooth solution than one giant elevator tray. As always, whether changes are still planned or are being made remains to be seen. But while we're on the subject of ships, I may as well jump to our next segment called Ship a Show, in which we detail one ship per show, at least until we run out of ships. So far, we've covered the 300i and the Constellation. The ship chosen for this episode is none other than the Freelancer. The Freelancer is manufactured by MISC, which is the Musashi Industrial and Starflight Concern. It has a max crew of two and a mass of 55,000 kilograms with a focus on long-range exploration and heavy mercantile use. Straight from the ship's development document, quote, MISC is known for producing efficient, modular, middle-of-the-road ships, primarily transports of different sizes. Freelancers are used as long-haul merchant ships by major corporations, but they are just as frequently repurposed as dedicated exploration vessels by independent captains who want to operate on the fringes of the galaxy. Don't let some of the alien technology in the cockpit surprise you. The Freelancer's design owes several of its internal systems to a lend-lease deal with the Sean. End quote. The Freelancer has an upgrade capacity of 10, a cargo capacity of 20 tons, three engine modifiers, an antimatter maximum class, two times TR5 thrusters and eight times TR2, with seven hardpoints including four class two, two class three, and one class four. And that's the Freelancer. We've seen the design evolve quite a bit since the original concept art vote, and I think it's turning out great. Just a classic, iconic space vessel. Not my ideal ship, as it seems right between the dogfighting usefulness of the 300i and the similar cargo-carrying capabilities with combat readiness of the Constellation. I do like how it looks, though. Now, as mentioned, this episode is the first that will be opened up to guests, and this episode is in turn going to be the first to feature a guest. But before I open up the comm channels, I'd like to talk about peripherals. What will be useful? What will be necessary? What will be just a neat addition? As part of the crowdfunding campaign, peripheral support is confirmed and quite in-depth. Multi-monitors, joysticks, the Oculus Rift, and of course, a tablet companion app. On the subject of tablet integration, 
And before I get too carried away, I'd like to talk about an idea that was emailed to me by a listener, user Hawk from the official forum. Straight from the email, quote, Let a friend with a tablet command a crew member by connecting a tablet to your PC. You could let it have base control over an NPC crew member, for instance, the managing of power systems, radar, or a turret. This would turn this into a great game to play when you have a friend around, or if you have a child. Obviously, graphically speaking, the tablet app wouldn't be able to handle much, but for the turret command, you could have wireframe graphical representations. Perhaps even give each NPC a specific code that you could give to any friend with a tablet, thus allowing them to take control as they wish. End quote. Hawk created a thread on the official forum where users discussed this topic. You can find a link to it in the show notes. Regarding the idea, I think it's excellent. As I'm not a game developer, however, I don't know how feasible it is. As mentioned, a companion app for Android and iOS was a stretch goal reward and is currently planned. I believe the basic functionality will be the ability to check your character inventory, your missions that you might have available or are currently underway, and things like the news feed. Beyond that, I'm not sure what else CIG has planned for tablet integration. Regarding Hawk's idea, how simple or difficult it is to incorporate a tablet with the ability to control an object in a game is, of course, the biggest factor in whether or not the idea will be possible. Obviously, an iPad, even two years out, wouldn't have the ability to render upper-end PC graphics, but if all it's rendering is, as Hawk says, wireframe graphics, as you might see in an old sci-fi film when someone is manning a turret, then graphics obviously wouldn't be the bottleneck to integrating something along those lines. But not even just turrets. I especially like Hawk's idea of friends being able to control ship systems from their tablet. It's all great ideas, though I'm unsure if development priority would be high enough for it to ever be realized. But keep at it, Hawk. As I said, great ideas, and thank you for writing in. If anyone else has any ideas they'd like to hear discussed, feel free to send an email to starsoratoria at gmail.com. So what peripherals are borderline necessary? For me, that's going to be a joystick and throttle combo, called a HOTAS, which is an abbreviation for hands-on throttle and stick. As I've mentioned in a previous episode, the biggest problem with a joystick is that the guns and turrets on ships in Star Citizen will probably not all be fixed to the craft. My understanding is limited to playing games, so correct me where necessary, but in modern military aircraft, you generally have two personnel aboard a craft that has weaponry that's not fixed. For example, an Apache helicopter will have rotating weapons that will be controlled by the gunner, while the pilot will be able to fire the fixed weapons. The Constellation has three seats in its cockpit, so perhaps it will operate similarly. But for craft like the Hornet and the 300i, which are single-seat cockpits, it remains to be seen what kind of control scheme there is and whether or not all weaponry will be fixed. Perhaps there will be some type of auto-tracking element to the weaponry. Anyway, for a lot of the peripherals that I'm going to mention, check the show notes for links and info about them. I might rattle some names off and... Endless explanations about each one would be a bit fatiguing, as I think most of you are already familiar with them. But a HOTUS setup is critical for me. Which HOTUS? There are a bunch on the market right now, and quality ones range from around $100 to $500. In addition, I would like to have rudder pedals, so essentially I can feel like I'm in a cockpit. If you go all high-end, you'll be looking at roughly six dollars to $700 after HOTUS and pedals. Now, of course... The question will be, should you get one now? 
or wait two years until Star Citizen comes out, or at least a year for the Alpha? What if someone comes out with a joystick set up specifically for Star Citizen? My plan is to wait a while. I currently have a basic cheap joystick I use to fly in other games, and it's more than adequate to let me practice my flying in the meantime. But on the subject of cockpits, you have things like the Obutto products, specifically the Ozone and Revolution. Now, I'm a bit of a nut when it comes to these things, as I've been setting up makeshift cockpits since I was a little boy. As a teenager, I remember setting up a recliner with a bulky computer, including high-speed 56k dial-up connection, on a tray in front, a keyboard on my lap, and then an old tiny TV on a stool to the side so I could watch cartoons while I waited 10 minutes for articles to load. I made do, but that's never stopped for me, so getting something like an Obutto Revolution is going to be the pinnacle. With Star Citizen, multi-monitors are supported, so come two years from now, you're going to have the decision to make between a multi-monitor setup in your cockpit or an Oculus Rift. Now, coming off of the tail end of CES 2013, and all of the excitement and basically zero negativity around the Oculus, has me doing cartwheels on the flight deck. I can't wait to try it out myself, but the simple concept is that you're putting on this headset and essentially inserting yourself into a completely three-dimensional world. So with the Oculus Rift and Star Citizen, I'm not just looking at a rectangular screen or screens representing my cockpit, I'm in my cockpit. This brings us to an issue that might crop up assuming the Oculus ends up being as heavily integrated with Star Citizen as many expect and I personally hope it is. I realized this just the other day. Regarding peripherals, if you're wearing the Oculus Rift, it defeats the purpose of many of them. MFD panels, iPad apps, etc. Of course, the cockpit and joystick are important as you'll feel those in and around your setup and those will further entrench you in the experience, but you won't be able to see anything besides what's in your in-game cockpit. A lot of people are interested in the leap motion and its integration with the Oculus. Personally, I'm not as excited about that one as one thing that's missing from it, which is a bit critical for me, is tactile feedback. I might be able to reach up and press something on a cockpit panel in-game, but among other things, I feel like the accuracy of it would be difficult to assess without actually feeling anything. It's kind of like those sword fighting games where you use something like a Wii controller and you swing your sword, but it doesn't actually contact anything. Maybe some gloves with tactile feedback might come out within the next few years to use in addition. Peripherals to peripherals and so on. But here's my ideal setup. A cockpit, probably Obato, a high quality HOTUS with rudder pedals, an Oculus Rift that hopefully has more uses outside of gaming eventually, so I don't have to invest in a three-monitor setup as well. And of course, the classic keyboard and mouse for general movement on foot and hotkeys. Or an Xbox 360 controller, depending on what's best. Many people prefer keyboard and mouse for flight over joysticks as well, so that's one less peripheral for those lucky souls. Anyway, how much of these peripherals are necessary? Probably none. Useful, I'd say most. Just neat to have, definitely all. Fortunately, we all have at least two years to start saving. It's bittersweet, but that time will pass quickly, I'm sure. Well, the comm channels are open. I'm currently sending out a ping on some of the more covert frequencies, so any pilots or star citizens out there who are close enough to pick it up shouldn't be more than two star systems. Feel free to call. Oh, that was quick. Let's patch it in.
Hello? Can you hear me? I think you're coming in. It's clearing up. Keep talking. Yeah, the signal's a bit iffy, but I can hear you. I think we're good. Uh, thank you for calling in. Um, can you tell us your name, sir? Well, I'd prefer to use my call sign. What's your call sign? My call sign is F.A. Man. F.A. Man. No real names. I can respect that. Well, as we know, it's unsafe for you to give us the specifics of your location, but give us a general area. You must be floating in your ship somewhere. I'm on a bit of a mission, actually. <laughs> a mission? Call signs, missions, are you in the military? You could call me a freelancer. Fair enough. So what are you currently freelancing? Actually tracking a pirate convoy passing through this sector. Moments ago I was hidden away in an asteroid field. Have you checked Spider in the Cathcart system? That place is known to house the kind of shady types you're after. I'm not far from that location. It's definitely on the list. Floating near an asteroid belt, waiting on a convoy. Sounds like you have some time then. Let's get right to it. Tell me what attracted you to Star Citizen. A little bit of background. My time with gaming sort of came after Chris Roberts. I missed a lot of the good old space games. And I played a small demo of Freelancer way back in the day. And although I was too young to really appreciate it, I fell in love with the mechanics of the game. Uh, just kind of that sense of wonder in space. Uh, it definitely leaves a lasting mark uh, when, you're, when you're young. When Star Citizen was announced, I definitely didn't hesitate to... Uh, jump right in. It was just an opportunity you couldn't pass up for someone who was waiting for a game like Freelancer to come back. Right on. Well, since we're delving into your past, why don't you tell me about your gaming history leading up to Star Citizen? What else did you play? Well, I started PC gaming back with Battlefield 1942. I really loved the strong community in that game and the mods. Uh, the mods really made that game. Uh, Desert Combat eventually turn into Battlefield 2. That really started my love for flying in games, helicopters, jets with, dogfighting, and, uh, and actually kind of started off my social gaming experience too. I had gotten into a clan. It was just some of the most fun I've ever had. And from there, it sort of just exploded in every direction. I had more shooters like Counter-Strike, the iconic games like Half-Life 2, uh, real-time strategy games, RPGs, and uh, World of Warcraft. That took up a lot of my life. <laughs> so, but first-person shooters are kind of your wheelhouse. I played a lot of them, yeah. Well, back to Star Citizen. You pledged, just like all of us, back in October, November. Uh, but what ship did you pledge for, and why did you choose it? Originally, I just kind of wanted to make a small contribution and get a little extra in return, so I went for the Aurora. But late in the Kickstarter, as things really started to get exciting with the developments and they started to bring in a lot of money and a lot of awesome promises, uh, they got over their initial slump, so to say. I chose to upgrade. I was a little torn between what I wanted to go for, uh, but I, I went with the Freelancer uh, because it seemed a bit more unique and flexible compared to the Hornet. Uh, it had the trade aspect, the exploration aspect, because we're going to get plenty of uh, dogfighting and combat ships in the game anyway. But uh, after a little while, I just said, screw it, and went with the Hornet add-on anyway, because I got excited. Well, that's a good segue. What type of player will you be? A military grunt? A lovable rogue? Tell us about your in-game character. It kind of depends on the state of life, I guess, in a couple of years from now, and what kind of a community I get into with the game, You know, what kind of clan, uh, and whatnot. Grunt PvP will always be available, but... Anyone who gets maybe tired of PvE, depending on how they implement it to the game, they always end up moving into 
different sections of the game. I've always wanted to get into trade. I've played EVE Online. I've tried a little bit of trade here and there, and it kind of grabs my attention. So assuming that they do it in a way that I can be maybe a little bit more passive with it or even semi-active, semi-passive, something I can do even if I don't have a lot of time to put into the game, trade is probably going to be a big part of what I do once uh, Star Citizen launches. I always attempted to do trading in EVE Online, but I just never had the time to wrap my head around all of the intricacies. Of course, you have your simple buy low here, sell high there, but any given item could be a different value in any given area of space. Right. I'm interested to see how complicated Star Citizen is beyond the buy low, sell high dynamic. But what are you looking forward to most about Star Citizen? In the specific sense, I'm looking for a really good space simulator from someone with a proper background like Chris Roberts, with all the sci-fi elements that you'd expect. I'm looking for a cohesive experience that brings all the elements we want together in a polished, satisfying package. I really like the idea of the custom servers and mod support because whether or not the MMO official aspect is amazing or not, the community is what's going to keep the game going even years down the line. That's a very good point. In the general sense, I'm looking for a game built for the PC from the ground up, visually and technically pleasing to really take advantage of what our computers can offer now and even two years down the road. It's an overused term, push the envelope, um, but it seems like that's what Chris Roberts is trying to do. We're in this world of consoles and ports and cross-platform development with PC taking the backseat in a lot of situations, and even indie games. Uh, it's just refreshing to see that someone will come forward and take on this ambitious project and say, I see the potential in the PC platform. Right. And not even just consoles, but underpowered consoles. What was it, 2005 that the uh, Xbox and PlayStation came out? Yeah, 05, 06 were the, was that time. And, right. Uh, we may be seeing them at the end of this year. And even when the new ones come out, they're still going to be behind, barring some miracle, uh, upper-end PC hardware. Right. I mean, it's, development is obviously a little bit different when you make games specifically for the hardware, but especially early on when developers are mainly going to be using the APIs and whatnot instead of developing on the hardware, right. um, we're not going to be seeing anything close to what something like Star Citizen can offer. Well, speaking of developers and hardware, I've been talking about peripherals this episode. What are your thoughts on things like the Oculus Rift? I think they're really cool concepts. It's refreshing to see a big focus from the industry on these kinds of third-party um, developments and whatnot because largely our control scheme has been pretty stagnant for a long time. you got a keyboard, mouse... You have different controllers of different sorts, but nothing super innovative. And for a game like Star Citizen that's aiming to be really quote-unquote immersive, having this extra focused development on some kind of uh, virtual reality system is pretty refreshing. How do you think that the Oculus Rift might integrate with Star Citizen gameplay and maybe change it for the better or for the worse? Well, it's going to give you a very straightforward way of looking around in your cockpit. It's not going to be like it is for some existing games where it's sort of just like controlling your analog stick. If I can be in my cockpit, maybe in a dockfight, 
and I'm looking around while I'm flying in one direction, just by tilting my head and seeing the ships off to my left and my right, it's going to bring a whole sort of another dimension into the dogfighting aspect. And those people that can take advantage of it may be at an advantage, but it's certainly going to be an awesome experience for those who do. Right. Well, I know personally for me, the biggest drawback of the Oculus Rift is that I will never be able to take it off. Right. But I am, I am really excited for it. But there's other peripherals. Uh, did you actually start a thread on the Star Citizen subreddit about peripherals? Yeah, it was, it was a while back, so it's going to be buried. But I had basically said, are you buying new hardware for Star Citizen? Unfortunately, a lot of people took it as sort of, are you buying stuff now? Are you upgrading your computer? Are you buying peripherals? I did sort of try to explain that I meant in the long term. Are you thinking about getting et cetera, et cetera. Personally, I, I know I'm going to be building a brand new computer for the launch, something super powerful. I'll, you know, If I can't get my hands on the Oculus Rift or if I can't work well with it, I'll get big monitors and all that good stuff. I saw some uh, differing opinions. P some people were like, yes, I'm just like you, I'm going to get a new computer. I'm going to get awesome peripherals. Some people said, I'm going to stick with my computer or uh, maybe a lower-end computer, but get an Oculus Rift so I can at least get that immersion. So there's a pretty wide range of what people are doing, but there's certainly the excitement for the more, maybe the ambitious approaches to the, to the game and what you're buying for it. What about controls? Do you plan to use a joystick, a HOTA setup, or are you more of a keyboard and mouse flyer? I've had different experiences in games like Battlefield 3. At least early on, I had pretty poor experiences with the joystick, so I went to keyboard and mouse. Uh, so I think it depends on how they implement it. But I think for a game like this, with just the sheer uh, level of control that they're promising for us for the different vectors, I think I'll probably end up getting a nice joystick and possibly even something like foot pedals. I think you'll like it if you do. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. I don't know if you've kept up with some of the controversy on the forum around subscription content, uh, but what are your thoughts on that if you have? So to be honest, I haven't really been following it, but my take on the matter is that the community requested a subscription service for various reasons, and CIG were happy to offer it, give them some early access perks, and make content that otherwise would not be available, or so they say. Regardless of whether that is true or not, Really, my only concern is, will this content make it out to the community, the rest of the community, in a polished fashion, in a reasonable time, sort of basically how the subscribers got it, except just a little bit farther down the road? On the last Wingman's Hangar, they said, and they get first crack at it since they're the ones paying for it, but those things will all eventually trickle down to the forums and everybody else that have pledged. That doesn't exactly answer my concerns, but they're certainly aware of how we feel. And I strongly doubt with how much they've been communicating with the community and basically taking care of us after this huge Kickstarter and backing event that they would screw up something like this. I completely agree with you. On the one hand, I think it's fair to play devil's advocate for people that are a little bit concerned about it. Because they did subscribe and pay tons of money right off the bat to get the game off the ground and were promised as part of that crowdfunding campaign regular updates and information. 
and the subscriber option came towards the tail end of the campaign as a result of a poll asked to essentially the equivalent of hungry, anxious piranhas who overwhelmingly and excitedly voted yes. My guess is if there was a vote now, I doubt it would be quite as overwhelmingly in favor of subscription-based content. So you have people who have paid, in some cases $250 to $1,000, who are feeling a bit uneasy about being asked to pony up another 10 to 20 every month for early access to information that they were, or that they feel they were promised in the first place. So I completely understand where they're coming from. Chris Roberts responded on the forum to this concern and essentially said that the updates subscribers are getting wouldn't even be possible without the money that subscribers are paying to get it. Some users argued in response that originally the campaign was asking and hoping for just two million and they received almost five and a half million over that two million. Personally, I just have to ask myself, as much money as that seven million plus is, do I really want any of that going to delivering meatier content updates, or do I want it all going into a polished final product? My general attitude when waiting for games that I'm really excited about to release, and that aren't releasing until years from now, is to stick my head in the sand. Unfortunately, the game that I'm arguably more excited to play than any, and that's at least two years away, I chose to run a podcast for, so I'm a bit stuck. But I wouldn't hesitate to recommend to people that they step away from time to time. There's nothing worse than sticking around waiting with drool dribbling down your chin for scraps of info. It's certainly a nice surprise to come back to more information. You're right. Precisely. And as much as we'll all play a part in the development, it's still nice to step away from time to time and get a breather. But on a lighter note, F.A. Man, and considering that Star Citizen is two years away... What games are you playing now, and will you be playing while you wait for its release? Like a lot of people, I've been trying to work on my backlog of games that I never played. I have this really skewed order of play. Like, for example, I just finished Half-Life 1 this year, and that's really embarrassing. But I have larger games like The Witcher series and Knights of the Old Republic to get through. I have shorter games like Mark of the Ninja and a couple of Tryon games, Torchlight and whatnot. And then I have stuff in the middle, like the Bioshock games and the Stalker games. I got a lot to play. I'm trying to keep myself from purchasing anything else. And I've actually kickstarted both uh, Steam Bandits and Project Eternity, both of which are probably going to take a lot of time out of me anyway. Um, so you're going to be a busy guy. Yeah, I'm not going to run out of things to do in the next couple of years. <laughs> but uh, before I go, I wanted to actually turn this around on you a bit. Oh. As one of your regular listeners, I've been wondering about your answers to some of these questions. Okay, sure. For example, what attracted you to Star Citizen? Well. Oh, crap. Uh, I got something coming up on radar. Uh-oh. I'll have to cut this short. Thanks for having me. Well, that was abrupt. You be careful out there, F.A. man, and thank you for calling in. That's probably going to about wrap us up for this episode. For anyone interested in guesting on future shows, feel free to send me an email or leave a comment on the website. F.A. man was the first guest, as he had the distinction of being the very first person to ask about guesting on the show, way back in November, following the first episode. So it doesn't take you being an employee of CIG or a governmental representative of any planetary or system-wide nation. 
would love to hear your opinions and discuss things that are important to you as they relate to Star Citizen, its community, and gaming in general. In any event, I hope I didn't come across too negative in this episode regarding some information CIG has released thus far, but that's the beauty of us lowly end users being able to have a say and voice our opinions during the development process. We can offer encouragement and criticism in equal measure, and both of which should always be constructive. We shouldn't be yes-men, nor should we whine and complain, making unrealistic demands as we see fit. As stated, we're two years out from Star Citizen. That's two years worth of positive contributions to be made. In our next episode, we're going to look deeper into general game mechanics, how some of the more involved stuff might work, like the economic system, trading, mining, and crews on carriers, and how some of the minutiae might work, like tractor beams, repair bots, and the trading system. We'll also touch on how big of an impact modding will have on the game and its lifespan. Until then, my producer and I are going to finally get out of this medical station with, of course, many thanks to our hosts and friends here, and get ourselves back home, wherever that may or may not be. To all you star citizens, thanks for listening. To all you star lesser thans, as some would have you named, don't let the man keep you down. That citizenship is only just around the corner if you know where to look. My name is Senate Van Rijn, and this has been another episode of Stars Oratoria. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.